Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. San Francisco is seeing a troubling rise in drug overdose deaths this year, driven in large part by fentanyl, the dangerous synthetic opioid that's up to 50 times more potent than heroin. We'll talk about what can be done to prevent more fatalities and improve access and treatment for those most in need. Then, as California rolls back reopening plans, two new promising coronavirus vaccine candidates offer hope. We'll look at what the vaccine news means for the battle against the virus, and we'll take your questions. That's next, after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. San Francisco has recorded more than 460 drug overdose deaths from January to August of this year. That's compared to 441 in all of 2019. That's according to the city's medical examiner's office. The fatalities are chiefly attributable to fentanyl, which is a dangerous synthetic opioid that drug experts say only recently became widely available in San Francisco. We're going to talk about what can be done to prevent more overdose deaths and why the pandemic is complicating some efforts to provide people the treatment they need. And joining us is Trisha Thadani, City Hall reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. And welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. Also glad to have Daniel Ciccaroni with us, who is professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. And welcome back to the program, Daniel Ciccaroni. Michael, good morning. Thanks for having me again. Good morning to you. And uh, Tricia, let me begin with you. And let's just begin by getting a picture of what's going on here. It's almost really in every corner of the city that we're finding fentanyl out on the streets, uh, Xanax laced with it, cocaine laced with it, methadone, heroin. This is a serious crisis. And it means that about a couple of overdoses every day and exponentially rising. The biggest killer and the biggest reason is fentanyl, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and Mike, Michael, those the numbers are actually even higher now. We're well over 500. Um, the numbers you said were in August and September and October have just been have just been worse and worse. And yeah, it's it's a large driver is fentanyl. Um, and then you have the pandemic is disrupting services in the city. Um, you know, it's isolating more people from um, those that would generally be able to help them if they're overdosing. More people are alone and it's just it's just harder and harder to get help these days. It's more deadly, in fact, than COVID-19 by many uh, accounts, uh, multiplied by many times, I should say. Uh, we need a lot more in the way of treatment here. Where are we in terms of treatment? Yeah, I mean, the story in San Francisco has long been that getting treatment is really difficult. Um, I mean, the demand way outweighs the supply that we have. Um, 
you know, we spend millions of dollars on this every single year, but when someone does get to that point where they're ready for treatment, there are so many hurdles and barriers that they still need uh, to face in order to get that. Well, the way that things have been operating, and I know you just find this disconcerting and confounding, and so do I, there's so much money spent in all of these hearings and programs and attention giving to, given to overdoses and drug use. Uh, but the, the combination, the traditional combination of harm reduction, treatment, and law enforcement just doesn't seem to really be making much movement on the needle here. Right. And that's something that uh, Jason and Dan will probably be able to speak to a little bit better than than I do. But I mean, the harm reduction work is, is really important in San Francisco. You know, meeting when there is a lack of these services for for people in the city. I mean, meeting people where they're at is also really important, keeping them as safe as you possibly can while they are using so that you can eventually eventually when they're ready, then they will be able to decide on their own that they're ready for treatment and ready for the next step. Trisha Tadani, again, a City Hall reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. And uh, Professor Ciccaroni, let me go to you. I mean, I've been reading about Behavioral Health Access Center over on Howard Street. They're open during business hours, 8 to 5. That doesn't necessarily help people who are looking for help to a great degree, does it? No, we need more flexible um, treatment options. Uh, I think the for folks that suffer with substance use disorders, particularly at the at a very high end where they're combining uh, multiple substances and, and they would have, you know, what a clinician would call a severe uh, uh, use disorder, um, they have fairly chaotic lives and, um, and, and, and alternative uh, priorities that don't necessarily include, you know, in the top three, uh, going to an appointment um, uh, today. And so um, flexible hours, expanded hours, low barrier uh, care, mobile care, well, like the street buprenorphine um, um, homeless program um, uh, are, are essential. And isolation uh, due to COVID makes things all the more worse at this point, don't they? Oh, is it, uh, unfortunately COVID has accelerated, it's put, put fuel on the fire. Uh, fentanyl deaths around the country were uh, going back up um, uh, in 2019, early 2020. Uh, COVID has just accelerated uh, the process. I don't think humans do very well under isolation. We've seen even outside of the, you know, the the hardcore drug world, just go to something more mundane like uh, alcohol use. Alcohol use has gone up um, uh, during uh, the months that we've been under uh, social distancing protocols. Um, and along with that, I expect that we'll start seeing that alcohol use disorder rates uh, go up either later this year or early next year. Um, all drug use has, prob has probably gone up. We do know that overdoses have accelerated uh, in 2020 uh, beyond what, the what, what we expected from 2019 to 2020. Um, and that was already going up uh, uh, historic to historic levels. I want to come back to you in a moment, Professor Ciccaroni, and also get some more from uh, Tricia Thadani about what's out there on the streets. But I also want to talk with someone who has been involved in harm reduction uh, for uh, actually harm reduction program manager for Glide, and that's Jason Norelli. And he joins us by phone now. And uh, Jason, welcome to the program. Good to have you. Good morning. It's an honor to be here. I, I should mention that 28% of those who are out there uh, suffering from drug uh, addiction and overdoses are homeless people, and I know you've been working with them, particularly out in these safe uh, cleaning sites by uh, well, the public library and all, uh, working with about 
well, a couple thousand, um, and hats off to you for that. Uh, I want to get a picture for people, though, what we're talking about here. Um, first of all, how are people faring in the pandemic as you see it? Um, it's certainly more difficult. I mean, I walked to work through the Tenderloin this morning and walked right by the Fulton encampment. And uh, you, you see a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And what could be done in your mind to at least alleviate or help that suffering? I know that now, and we can talk about Narcan, Narcan has become a big element in this, hasn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that intervention in San Francisco um, has reversed 2,600 uh, overdose that would have been fatal if we didn't have that intervention. I mean, we can't, we have to look through a new set of eyes. We can't arrest our way out of this problem, you know? Um, yeah, we've tried yeah, that yeah. for decades um, with the drug war, and, it, and it, it just isn't working. No, I absolutely agree with you. What do you think can work that's different, or what can be innovative here? What particularly maybe can citizens who care about uh, those who are out in the streets suffering, what can they do? Um, I mean... We could support harm reduction programs for sure, but I feel like we need the whole spectrum of interventions to really be effective. Um, you know, harm reduction gets a bad rap for enabling people um, to use drugs, but um, it's, uh, in my opinion, is enabling people to be safer and um, be able to survive to the, you know, and, and it's, center, it's basically demarginalizing people. Um, it's centering their experience and their, their own self-determination so that they can make the right decision. I mean, one of the programs we have uh, is a low threshold access through um, telehealth um, for to get on the opiate replacement drug medically assisted treatment uh, called Suboxone. And um, you can see people's lives completely um, shift when they when they get on this medication. Well, I thank you, Jason, not only for the work you do, but for joining us this morning. And I appreciate your being with us. And again, that's Jason Norelli, who is a Harm Reduction Program Manager at Glide. Now I go back to Professor Ciccaroni, uh, Professor of Family and Community Medicine at UCSF. And uh, Daniel Ciccaroni, let's talk about Narcan for the moment because it's ironic. I know back in the 90s you were secretly distributing it, but things have changed. And now uh, it probably, from your perspective and from many who do the work that you do, should be easily available and even more available than it is. So naloxone is a pure antidote. So there is no fun in it. It's not an abusable drug. Uh, it has gone, as, as you mentioned, it's gone from an underground kind of um, um, uh, scrappy do-it-yourself kind of programming to being embraced now at the highest levels, including the Surgeon General, Health and Human Services, um, have embraced uh, naloxone distribution as a way to address the opioid overdose crisis. Uh, we do not have enough of it. Uh, we do not have enough of it in the forms that people need. So, for example, in San Francisco now, um, San Francisco likes to be unique. And in the drugs world, it is, again, uh, taking a unique position. Uh, it's one of the few places in the country where fentanyl is being sold as fentanyl. It's not being mixed into the heroin like most places in the East Coast. Um, because it's being sold as is, people can do different things with it. So the innovation here is that people are smoking it. Um, so if you now are a smoker of fentanyl and you're handed naloxone, you're most likely handed naloxone that involves a needle. Well, that's not appropriate. People who are smoking their drugs should have an inhaled form of naloxone. That 
inhaled form unfortunately costs a little bit more money. But we need to think like that. We need to think like the users. We need to tailor our services to them. Um, naloxone needs to be um, the way we think about a very common medications that might be in our medication cabinets like acetaminophen. <laughs> uh, it needs to be ubiquitous. Uh, friends, family, lovers, uh, partners need to have um, naloxone available. Um, uh, and that will make a difference. So that's, that's a high distribution, high availability, and we need to tailor it depending on route of administration of the drug. And again, a reminder to listeners that we're talking about the rise in overdose deaths in San Francisco this year, and we do welcome your involvement in the program. If you have questions or if you'd simply like to join this conversation or let us know what your thoughts are, you can do that now by calling in on our toll-free number, the number to call 866-733-6786. Again, you can join us now, toll-free, 866-733-6786. Particularly like to hear from some of you who have had, well, your own concerns about drug addiction and how to overcome it, and maybe even have some ideas you can put into the hopper with us here. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. We're coming up on a break here in seconds, Trisha Thadani, but uh, there's really no shortage of beds here, right? Yeah, it's not necessarily the shortage of beds. It's like the type of beds that we have and the barriers that there are to get people into them. That's the problem. That is the problem. And we'll talk about more of the problems and maybe even come to some idea of what can be done to ameliorate those problems. Another problem where caseworkers are pretty burned out. Staff workers uh, are affected by really well, the high incidence of what we're talking about. We'll talk more. We'll talk with you, our listeners. Join us again, toll-free, 866-733-6786. You're listening to the Forum Program on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the well, very disturbing rise in overdose deaths in San Francisco this year, exacerbated by, so the evidence seems to point, the pandemic. And if you have something you'd like to add to this conversation or if you have questions, and wh frankly, what questions do you have and what concerns you most? Do you want to join the program? Uh, also, you might want to think about what more the city can be doing to prevent these fatalities. And if you have some ideas, we'd like to hear from you. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Again, the number for your calls, 866-733-6786. And speaking about causes and things to do and ways to uh, deal with the problem, here's a suggestion from a listener named Robert who says, fentanyl is a poison. The answer to the problem is to have 15-year minimum sentences for everyone who sells it or imports it. Unfortunately, with a district attorney who favors criminals over victims, probably no one would be prosecuted in San Francisco. Sounds a bit harsh, Trisha Thridani, but there have been many who have been critical of Chesa Boudin, who has uh, certainly said that um, uh, he has no desire to, well, to go after low-level drug sellers. But there's been a lot of concern about maybe not 
uh, enough law enforcement being used. Uh, Dennis Herrera has been involved now in getting in injunctions against against 28 known uh, heroin offenders, which I'm sure you know about. That's in the tenderloin. But what about that idea of more legal enforcement and the reputation San Francisco has for being too soft? Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely hear that criticism over and over and over again, it, particularly when it comes to the new DHS Aboudin. But arrest, it doesn't seem like arrest, like arresting people is also the answer to the problem here. I mean, yesterday I, I put out an article that showed where people were dying um, from overdoses, and that was concentrated in Soma and the Tenderloin. And then SFPD had actually responded with a tweet with an overlay of where their drug arrests had happened, and that was also concentrated in Soma and the Tenderloin. So, I mean, the, the point there is that, yeah, there is some, something isn't working there. I mean, if they are arresting aggressively in that area, but there are still this area still has the highest concentration of deaths and overdoses, um, then, you know, something needs to change. Something definitely needs to change. And let me go back to you, Daniel Ciccaroni, with a tweet from a listener and get your response. This always comes up in any of these kinds of discussions. This is a listener who tweets, the war on drugs like prohibition in the 1920s has been a complete failure. It's time to legalize all drugs. If the profit motive is taken away, the criminal element disappears, use the money wasted on policing and put it in treatment and rehab. That's a solution we've heard certainly bandied about often in the past. Your thoughts, Professor? Yeah, so there you have it, Michael. In the, in the, in the first two uh, audience responses, we have the lock it up response and the legalization response. The, the truth is we're gonna go for something in the middle here, right? So the war on drugs has failed. It, 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 um, it locks up too many uh, black and brown people. Uh, it treats uh, drug use, drug use, not just drug dealing, but drug use as a crime. We need to end that era. Uh, the Oregonians have, have moved in that direction with uh, a decriminalization of drug possession. Um, it's not, not full legalization, but it's it's basically taking away the harsher penalties from simple drug use. Uh, the truth is that when we uh, try to, quote, arrest our way out of this, we go for low-level um, uh, user dealers, uh, and that just exacerbates the problem. It adds to the stigma, it adds to the shame, it adds to the marginalization. It doesn't allow people to come in and access care, which is what we really want to do. So I, I would uh, argue for a more humane model, more compassionate model that invites people in, that works in partnership with police, um, along with social services, to, get, to, to, to migrate people over uh, toward treatment. And speaking of our progressive DA, um, he put out, a, uh, uh, along with a collaborator, uh, um, a um, editorial yesterday in the Chronicle arguing for supervised consumption spaces and making a progressive uh, prosecutor argument. Well, you uh, know, these you, spaces you, save uh, lives. Um, um, and uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, getting back to ways of reducing uh, drug addiction, uh, you've come up with some ideas that I'd like to just. Uh, have you reflect on for a moment that I think we don't often hear. One is what comes under that broad rubric of behavioral economics. You think you can actually get people, uh, give them incentives and pay them to be clean. And you also, I think, have located something that I think needs to also be fleshed out. And that's uh, the idea that um, a lot of the problem and a lot of the crisis has to do with stigma. Oh, stigma is a huge part of this. You know, if this was a, another disease we were talking about, let's say, I don't know, the rate of heart attacks doubled 
in San Francisco, just like the rate of overdoses doubled in the last one year, or we would be attacking it very aggressively. We would not uh, stop until every stone was was turned over um, because um, well, we care about people that have heart disease. Um, we seem to care less about people that have drug addiction and we need to stop that. That's what's driving uh, uh, year over year, generation over generation increase in overdoses, uh, the marginalization and the shame that we put on to the problem. We need to address it forthrightly uh, with compassion. We need to teach it, you know, in the medical school that I'm at, we need to uh, start educating. <laughs> we need to boost the education of our, of our young medical providers so that they understand this problem as well as they understand any other problem in medicine. Um, what about your idea about paying people to be clean? I'd like to hear you. Well, I think the idea is that, you know, so because of the layers of stigma, because of comorbidities such as homelessness, uh, people live at the margins. If you want and need, because we want to have a healthier society, we want to have a more livable city, we need to bring people into care, right? And in order to bring them into care, we need to consider uh, incentives. Uh, this is working for... Um, problems such as HIV, that if you want to treat HIV among homeless, uh, there's a, a wonderful program uh, run through the Zuckerberg General Hospital uh, that incentivizes care and allows for flexible appointments. Uh, and this so-called pop-up model that they call it, um, I believe they have a paper coming out any day now that's going to show enormous success in engaging the population. So between low threshold programs like harm reduction and incentives, we can increase engagement. And that is the key thing in substance use. Getting people in the door uh, is uh, uh, the, the primary issue to address. And I think incentives should be considered. And let me bring a caller on. We go first to you, Kenneth. You're on. Good morning. Kenneth, are you there? No, Kenneth? Okay. But, uh... <laughs> We'll try one more time in a, in a moment, but let me, uh, in the meantime, read some emails that are coming in. Uh, uh, this is a listener who writes, if people with substance abuse disorders are overdosing, wouldn't the first step be uh, to have a public information campaign defining dosing limits? This is something users can control on their own, and it would give social workers and harm reduction methods a chance to actually get to people before they overdose. Let me go to another caller here. That's Islam joining us from Brentwood. Good morning. I don't, know if, I don't know if we're having problems with our phones, but uh, the callers don't seem to be coming through, at least uh, not at this moment. Let me go to some more of your emails then. Uh, Laura writes, I was so disheartened when the Justice Department, with Jeff Sessions at the helm, effectively shut down San Francisco's plan for a safe injection site. I found it so admirable that there were staff willing to go through the difficult process of implementing a site to help people, but they didn't even get to try. Let's talk about that, uh, if we may... With you, Tricia Thadani, I mean, we need, in many people's minds, injection sites, and we need more sobering centers. Your thoughts? Yeah, so in San Francisco, there is widespread support from Mayor London Breed to Senator Scott Weiner to those working on the front lines um, of this epidemic that safe consumption sites are something that can really help move the needle in this in this crisis. Again, it's not the silver bullet, but it's something that could effectively help and give people a safe place to be and around people. Um, but yeah, as this email said, we did run into federal challenges with the Trump administra administration essentially threatening um, San Francisco officials who were part of this and those who were using the site or would be using the site uh, with arrest. 
Now, with the new administration uh, coming in, and especially having Kamala Harris in, who understands the Bay Area's issues pretty intimately, uh, Mayor London Breed told me last week that she's, quote, hopeful uh, that they'll be able to move forward uh, if state legislation is approved, which it looks like it, it should be this year. And uh, Professor Ciccaroni, uh, can you say something about the idea the listener suggested about a public information campaign? Well, I, I think they're onto something. Um, you know, fentanyl is new in San Francisco, and I suspect a lot of the overdose uh, wave is due to its uniqueness, due to its potency, due to a lack of fully understanding uh, the drug. Um, and I think that uh, harm reduction can go a long way with educating people around dosing uh, and, and, and safer smoking techniques. I know the San Francisco AIDS Foundation with their uh, uh, harm reduction programs uh, is trying to address safer smoking because um, smoking is safer, but it's still leading to some overdoses um, and they would need nasal Narcan for, those, for that population. Um, but I think um, one advantage that we have here is that because fentanyl is being sold as is, it's not being a poison in another drug, um, that uh, people can learn to use it better. Um, I'm not 100% sure of that because it is such a potent drug, uh, but certainly given the crisis, all attempts should be made. And here's Smitter who writes as an addiction psychiatrist, I can say that there are too few of us. Something that is important to the discussion is workforce and education. Substance use disorders should be more integral in medical education and local government should invest more in funding the staff doing this life-saving work. I think we're okay now with the calls. Let me go to Islam and Brentwood. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Welcome. Join us. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make a comment because um, not only am I a mental health provider, um, I'm a mental health therapist, but I'm also a sister of um you know, someone who struggles with uh, heroin and fentanyl use. Um, and I think that there's a lot of different contributing factors. Um, you know, my brother lives in San Francisco. He um, is homeless. And I think that often those who are homeless, um, you know, don't have insurance or have Medi-Cal. And there are limited rehab services for those who have public insurance. And often the care staff, you know, they're doing the best that they can but inherently it's going to look different than a facility or a rehab facility that takes private insurance. And so I've come into, you know, this struggle myself and trying to support my brother who, um, and trying to find, you know, different services in San Francisco, um, rehab services, you know, long-term facilities, residential facilities, and it's, it's very limited. Um, and I also just wanted to make a comment about law enforcement. Law enforcement is not the same as mental health providers. And so they're not, I mean, some might be trained, you know, in mental health, um, but they're like those who are struggling with addiction are not going to look at law enforcement as people who are going to help them um, just because they have the badge, they have the weapons, you know, like it, it might actually be intimidating for them. Um, so I just think there's a lot of contributing factors on how challenging it is to kind of face this type of crisis. And I thank you for those comments and appreciate hearing from you, Islam. Uh, we're going to go to some more callers in a moment, but let me also um, read something that's come in from Bennett here who writes, I recently came home to someone outside my house bleeding profusely from his leg due to an intravenous drug accident. He didn't want to go to the hospital, but it, 
I don't know of any resources other than calling 911. The cops and an ambulance eventually came. There are a number of active users living on my block, and we have a general understanding about not involving authorities, but do we have any resources not involving 911? Can you help out there uh, with the, this, Trisha Thalani? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the question there. I mean, 311 uh, could be an option, but the times that I've called 311, they've also told me to call 911, and then it's just gone back and forth. I would actually uh, recommend giving that to Jason. He, he might have a better idea of the resources. Oh, we say goodbye to Jason. I'm sorry. We just, it was oh, just we a, what we call a call out. And yeah. yeah, sorry to say, but maybe we'll get a, list, a listener to uh, make a suggestion. Or Jason, if you're still listening by any chance, maybe you can uh, fax, uh, let us know, fax us. You can let us know by tweet or by email. Uh, let me bring another caller on in the meantime. Stephen joins us. And Stephen, thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Yeah, I was calling in response to your question about um, how about how would we be able to uh, um, give people dosing recommendations? And really, it's a it's really a hard thing to do with when you're you talking about street drugs. You'd never know what the potency is of the drug that you're actually getting, which is you know it's part it's that's part of the reason why we keep getting all these drugs that have fentanyl in them is because you you don't know exactly what you're getting when you buy it on the street. So the only way that would be reliable to be able to do something like that would be to have a safe injection site where they could test the drug and test its potency. And then, you know, further down the road, uh, it would be if we could get rid of the stigma of drugs enough and, you know, and if we could legalize drugs and have, you know, drug manufacturers make drugs that are potent, that are where there's like, you know, you know exactly what you're getting and it is exactly what you're getting. And, and that doesn't necessarily say that that's okaying addiction, but at least it's not causing a health threat to use the drugs to begin with. Well, Stephen, thank you for your thoughts. Appreciate your calling in. And I want to go back uh, to you, Tricia, to Donnie, about something else that we need to touch on here that we haven't talked about, and that is all of these uh, black men who are living in residential hotels who are dying at rates that far exceed their percentage of the population. What are we to make of that? Yeah, I mean, that that is a population that is being disproportionately affected by this crisis. And the people who are in residential hotels um, are particularly vulnerable because, yes, it's fantastic that they're off the streets and they have four walls and three meals a day. But at the same time, with the reality of substance abuse, it's also really dangerous to be alone. Um, and like what we were talking about earlier in terms of how the pandemic has really exacerbated this issue, this is really where you see it of when people are kind of alone for some of the first time um, while they're using and then they overdose and there isn't someone around to help them. Um, and that's why it's important for people to, to not be using alone. And, you know, that's also a big argument for the safe consumption site where there will be people around um, if something, God forbid, happens. And we'll bring another caller on, and that's Judy. Good morning. Good morning. Um, in regards to um, the, the uh, to reach out to places that would help when when I'm during a crisis like that, I have a um, intervention team where I live, and I had it in another county as well that was outstanding for these circumstances. And they're it's called crisis intervention team, and they're trained policemen that um, are trained 
to deal with people that are in psychosis or uh, on drugs and they don't come with bells and whistles and they make sure they talk to you and if they decide that you need help they'll take you if they don't but they're not there to punish you or arrest you they're there to help and they've done really well for many but but they don't get real well promoted i mean they don't you don't hear about it it needs to be told more that they exist well judy thank you for bringing that to the attention of our listeners i'm appreciative of that and i want to before we wrap up here, go to a tweet which uh, highlights the kind of tragedies we're talking about. Susie tweets, my nephew Alex is tragically part of these statistics. An honor student at the University of San Francisco, he tried to buy Xanax in the tenderloin for his anxiety, but got something with fentanyl, it killed him. I see the police arrest dealers in the tenderloin multiple times a week. What happens to them? Uh, what, what does happen to these dealers? Can you shed some light on that, Daniel Ciccaroni? Um, I actually, I actually cannot. Uh, can you help us here, Tricia? Yeah. Um, so I can't shed light on what exactly happens to the dealers, but Alec, I actually wrote about Alex in, in my story yesterday and it was a pretty, very tragic story where, you know, he was, he was stressed out and he tried, um, you know, he tried going through the regular means of seeing a psychiatrist and getting Xanax, but again, there were barriers in his way. Um, so he had turned to get Xanax on his own and it ended up, his family said it ended up being laced with fentanyl. And going back to the importance of these public service campaigns that we have, I mean, Alex did not have a history of substance abuse. As his cousin said, he was an honor student um, and he was just he was just stressed out with everything going on. It's and- such a sad story. I'm sorry for interrupting you because we are coming up on a break, but I hope we can have less of those, fewer of those kind of stories and really deal with this problem in a much more profound way. Thank you both. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.